Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Q&A. This is a podcast where we are dedicated to the truth of God's Word. In our Q&A, we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. We approach the Bible as if it is an authority because it is sola scriptura, only the Bible. Uh, we take questions and we look at them through the lens of Scripture. If you are joining us for the very first time, we are really glad that you're here. We hope that you are blessed by the time that you spend here. Uh, we will be taking questions. You write them out in the comments section and uh, then uh, put the word question in front of them and then we will answer your questions as we bring them in. I hope things are going well for you. We have a first question that is already loaded up here for today. This comes to us uh, from a previous, we'll get back to that screen here momentarily, but this comes to us from a previous Q&A. Our first question is, are we obligated to keep the Sabbath or to eat kosher? This is the basic question. Are Christians today obligated to keep the law? What part does the law play in the life of a Christian today? Uh, for example, uh, in the Bible, there were the Judaizers and they were the big false teachers of their day and they were trying to get the Gentiles to keep the law and they were struggling over the transition between Jesus being the fulfillment of the law, Jesus being the high priest and being the sacrifice and Jews not having to give those sacrifices anymore uh, because the temple was still standing to today where we know that the law has changed. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that out of necessity, the law has changed. The Bible also tells us in Galatians chapter three, that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. And once we've come to Christ, we no longer need a tutor. This is an analogy of a tutor taking care of the child until he brings the child to the parent. Then the parent takes over, the tutor leaves. That's the law. In Romans, Paul went to great lengths to show that the law was good. The law was not bad, but the law was weak in that it could not save. In Hebrews, we're told that Christ saves to the uttermost. All the law could do was show you what your sins are. It, could, it cannot help you with the sin. So Christian groups and cults today, and there are a lot of different ones, that try to tell you that you have to keep the Sabbath or that you have to keep the law or you got to keep the kosher meals are not understanding the role of the law originally, what it did, how it spoke of Christ. And now that we've come to Christ, we no longer need the law. I've got a couple of passages that I want to put up on the screen here to show you. Uh, this is, first of all, is Colossians. Uh, Colossians 2.16 says, no one, let no one judge you in food or in drink, or in regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. These are all Jewish things. The festivals, the food and the drink, the new moons were kosher food. These were the festivals they were supposed to keep. These were the Sabbaths. It says, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is in Christ. So people are all excited about the shadow of the law, but they were just a shadow of what was gonna come. It's like when the sun is behind someone and they, they're coming around a corner and the shadow comes first and then the person comes first. And if when the shadow came, you got really excited, ran up to the shadow, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Now you may be very excited that that person is there. You may think, I'm really, I really love them. I'm really glad they're here, but it would be weird 
if you interacted with their shadow instead of interacting with the person. And that's what people do with the law today. The law was good. The law shows God's heart that we find the spirit of the law in the law. But we also find that we can fulfill all of the law and the prophets today by loving one another. Now, as far as keeping the Sabbath, Romans 14, 5 and 6, I've got the scripture up here, says one esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. It says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. And so if you want to worship on Saturday, you can. You're free. You want to eat kosher food and kosher food alone? You're free. You can do that. But don't think it gives you any special privileges with God. And don't let anyone lay a trip on you by telling you that you're going to be closer to God if you keep parts of the law or you keep the Sabbath or you keep um, certain foods. This is really, really important. So here in Galatians 4, 8, it says, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Those weak and beggarly elements that Paul's talking about in Galatians is the law. He goes on to say, you observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Now we could continue to go on. Let's just read one more here. Hebrews, um, well, let me read a couple more. Hebrews 4, 9 says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest lest anyone fall according to the example, same example of disobedience. He's talking here about Jesus being our Sabbath, and he's talking about them going back to the temple instead of to Jesus. And there are those that haven't entered into the rest, which comes after the work, and we're no longer under the work. In Matthew 5, 7, and 8, Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees this, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you. These people draw near to me with their lips, and their mouths, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And that's what these Christian groups and cults do. They teach as doctrines the commands of men. They tell you, you've got to keep kosher meals, you've got to go to church on Sunday. Uh, they add other things to it. Um, and we are not in, by any, in any way, shape, or form under the law anymore. In Matthew, chapter 15, excuse me, in Luke, in, in Acts chapter 15, let me get the right book. In Acts chapter 15, they have a council. They meet together with the disciples because they want to know what do we do with the Gentiles? Do we make them get circumcised? Do they have to live according to these, um, to, to the law? They gather together and you can read it yourself. Acts chapter 15, they gather together and they and, and they come to the conclusion that, that we are not going to lay any requirements upon the Gentiles. And then probably feeling their authority, they said only that they would remember the poor and not eat things strangled by blood. Later on, Paul would say the only commandment they gave us was that we should take care of the poor, the very thing which we wanted to do. So for those of you that may somehow be, try, be influenced by someone that's in one of these Christian groups or one of these cults that's trying to get you to keep the law. Don't let them do it. 
I will not let anyone put me under bondage. Don't let someone put you under bondage back under the law. Uh, any of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to Christ and he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him uh, for he is lowly and meek and his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. All right, so that's a previous question that we received. Thank you very much uh, for your question. We have a question from JG. Good to see you. JG says, is, in, um, is secular philosophy and stoicism okay for a Christian to ascribe to as long as it doesn't contradict or go against our Christian beliefs and worldview, Plato, Epicurus, etc. Um, so here's, here's what I think. I think there's no reason for us to go back to the philosophies of the world. Stoicism was the idea that you are not going to get affected by the world around you, that the world, you're not going to give the world power to be able to, to make you angry or upset. And you're, you know, that's where the word stoic comes from. I'm just, you're stoic. You're just not showing any emotions at all. But there's a passage, and let me go ahead and pull it up here for you. In uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, and this is one that I quote often. It's one of my favorite quotes. When people ask me to sign their Bible, which I always think is a weird thing to do because I didn't write it. But sometimes, especially kids, will come up to me after church and ask if I'll sign their Bible. So I'll write, stay close to Jesus, 2 Timothy 3.16 in it. And um, so I'm in 1 Timothy, so let me go ahead and get to 2 Timothy. Um, because this is a verse that if we can learn it, we, we will know that we don't need anything else. And um, so this says, let me go ahead and bring this up on, uh, put it up on the screen for you. It says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Inspiration, it's God breathed, literally. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You, you don't need anything, you're thoroughly equipped. Everything that we need in life and godliness comes from the scriptures. So my question, JG, would be why would we put all of this effort into what we might be able to glean from stoicism and we might be able to glean a couple good things from it when we've got everything that we need for life and godliness in the pages of scripture why would we put all the effort to go into epicureanism when we've got everything that we need within the pages of scripture i think human philosophies fall short paul said i didn't come to the to the corinthians i didn't come to you with worldly wisdom but I came to you in the power of God. I think you ought to become an expert, JG, in the word of God. Study it, read it, underline it, find out what it says, find out how it applies, look at the difficult passages in the Bible. If we're gonna put effort in, let's put it there. Um, I, I, I'm hard pressed to say yes to this. I don't know that I would say that someone who was studying stoicism to see what they could get out of it and was an, a christian is not in is in sin but i think it would be very close and maybe close to idolatry i um i i would say hey there, there are certain philosophies that we can gain some stuff from the world but we gain everything we need from the pages of scripture and so jg i'm going to answer your question by saying i don't think we should 
and um, I'm going to be careful not to speak for God, but I don't think we should. I don't want to waste my time with Stoicism or Epicureanism or any other world philosophy that's out there that might get me focused in on something else. All right. So thanks, JG. I appreciate your question. Good to see you. Good to see all of you guys here. Uh, if you have a question, if you're new here, we want to welcome you. If you have a question, just write the word question or put a Q in front of your question or a question mark uh, and we'll take them in the order that they come in. Uh, we have we are taking questions from YouTube, from Facebook, um, from several different platforms. So really good to have you guys joining us. We have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that God was upset with the most to destroy inhospitably or inhospitality or sodomy or with the flood was it the nephilim or violence that caused the flood thanks okay jari thank you very much um there is a passage that tells us exactly what what the reason was that god destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm just going to take a second to see if I can find this. Um, I made some notes here on helping the needy and there is, let me just see if it's in here, if I can find it quickly. If I can't, I'll just go ahead and go on to answer your question. Um, but I think I can find it here. Man, I have a lot of scriptures in this. I have a lot of scriptures in this passage on helping um, on helping the needy. Let's see. All right. Deuteronomy. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not going to be able to find it. Sorry for taking that time to do that. All right. What was the reason that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? So there's a passage that I was looking for where God says, "What was the sin of your sister city Sodom well, of, of your of the city of Sodom and her sister city or her daughter?" talking about Gomorrah. And then it says that they had everything that they needed, that they had plenty. They didn't have to work and they didn't take care of the poor. We also know from Genesis that they took advantage of strangers and that they wanted to rape the men that came in to, um, to Lot's house. And so, um, the, 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 the sin, the sexual sin ended up being a result of them having everything they needed, not taking care of the poor and wasting all of their time. And they ended up looking for something that would satisfy and fulfill them. This is sin. This is the way sin works in the world. We end up getting caught up in something. It provides for us whatever it does. We're not bored anymore. We get the dopamine hit or we get the serotonin hit. And if we're, if we're busy doing the things we're supposed to do, we won't be doing the things we're not supposed to do. So yes, homosexuality is one of the reasons that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. But God also judges people for their sexual immorality, for heterosexual sexual immorality. And um, it, they didn't take care of the poor and they indulged themselves when God had provided them everything that they needed. Um, was it the Nephilim or violence? The Bible says that violence covered the face of the earth and the two of them may be connected. All right, Jari, and I don't want to get into details about the Nephilim right now. They were mighty men of old, um, but we do know that there was a lot of violence on the earth in those days and that God destroyed the earth because of violence. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because, partially because of the violence that they were doing there. They had heard 
God had heard, God tells Abraham, I've heard that they're doing things and I'm going down to see if it's so. And if it is, I'm going to destroy them. So he had heard the cries of the people that they were mistreating in Sodom and Gomorrah. So anyone that might think it's just because of the sexual acts that God destroyed the city, it's not true. It's for all kinds of other reasons, the sexual acts being a part of it. All right. Thank you very much, Jari. I appreciate you and I appreciate your question. We have a question from Annika. Annika says, um, question, how do you view the book of the Song of Solomon? So there's a couple of different ideas on the book of the Song of Solomon. There are those that take it as an analogy of our love towards God, that we are to have that kind of a passion towards God. There are others that believe that it is a book in the Bible that speaks of sexual intimacy between two people and gives really very detailed accounts as to sexual acts using metaphors. And I think that there's a couple of things that we learn here. Um, I tend to think that th there may very well be comparisons between our relationship with God in the book of the Song of Solomon. But I think it is a book about physical love between a man and a woman. And that's what I think it's about. And I think we can talk about it, but the best way to talk about it in mixed company, as they say, or pastors from a pulpit should be with metaphors. There are metaphors that were used that made it not as embarrassing to talk about. Um, pillow talk between a husband and a wife should remain in the bedroom. It's best to remain in the bedroom. There are reasons for that. And it's best sometimes to use metaphors instead of something that may sound a little bit more crass. Um, and I think that that's biblical in the Song of Solomon. And it may be that there is both of them that's there. However, it is definitely a book that is speaking about a man looking at a woman and a woman looking at a man and their interaction with one another sexually using metaphors. All right, Annika, thank you very much. Um, when I taught the Song of Solomon a few years ago, just because th th it, it's embarrassing to get up and teach it, and I taught it all in one day. I would not do that today, but I taught it all in one teaching just because I thought, I want to get this out of the way. I'll get all this embarrassment out of the way at one particular time. Uh, so thank you, Annika, for, for that question. Uh, Renee, we, we have a question from Renee. Renee, it's good to see you. Renee says, question, I've got this through a text message. How can I help her? What scriptures can I share with her? This was a text message. I've been cheating on my husband and I need prayers to give me the strength to correct this behavior and save my family. All right, Renee, first of all, what a what an absolutely tragic um, text message to get from someone that they've been cheating on their husband. And um, I'm, a, I'm afraid it's, it's going to have to be, you know, the Bible says what's shouted from the, what's, what's done in secret will be shouted from the rooftop. And so letting her know sooner or later, this is going to be found out. There may be consequences already that can't be stopped because she's been cheating on him. And one of those might be that it is revealed. However, 
there is a blessing with true and genuine repentance. So that if your friend really repents, turns from her sin, breaks it off, does what she can do, maybe the consequences won't come. I'm not saying that she shouldn't tell her husband, by the way, but I'm saying maybe the consequences won't come. Maybe her family will not be destroyed if she truly repents before God. This is a spiritual issue. It's not an issue from a worldly perspective of trying to run over here and hide this and run over here and hide that and I got this taken care of. It's about genuinely repenting and then letting God pick up the pieces, letting God take care of it from there. And that that becomes something that is extremely powerful. Um, and this is, she should really, I, I, I assume, I, I don't know that she's a Christian. I, I, I can't answer and tell her everything that she should do from a text message that's sent to you. You can't give her all the direction that you can give her from a text message. You have to find out more and you got to find out what she's willing to do. Is she willing to tell her husband? Is she willing to confess it? Is she willing to repent from it? Does she want to continue to hide it? Does she want to repent from it and continue to hide it? What is she wanting to do? What is she willing to do? And that can give you a lot more information as far as how you can help them. But I would encourage her that there's always a blessing with repentance. That if you will repent, God will bless you. You will find the forgiveness of God and you will find sometimes God will not shoot, shout it from the rooftops and sometimes you will not have the consequences that come from sin. If you, if you will truly repent and repent means to turn. It doesn't just mean to feel bad about it. It doesn't mean to say, I'm sorry about it. Repentance would be her saying to this guy, I am no longer going to be in a relationship with you. I'm stopping it now. That would be repentance. That's what repentance looks like. Turning back and giving her affection to her husband. And I would suggest that she sits down and talks to a pastor. Like I said, I don't know if she's a Christian, but I would suggest uh, that she sits down and talks to a pastor and repent from this before total destruction does follow. Because the Bible says that if you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you will reap corruption. If you sow, sow to the spirit, from the spirit you will reap life. She can turn the corner now. She can begin to do something that's good by repenting and, and trying to see what it is that God says. All right, so thank you very much, Renee. I'm sorry to hear that you're dealing with this. Prayerfully deal with it. Send her to someone who's really mature. Um, sit down and talk with her. Talk to her about the importance of repenting. We have a question here from, uh, looks like toes, twos. Is that how we would pronounce that? If you're new here, um, then you can give us a question. You could submit a question by writing the word question out or putting a, a, a Q in front of it or a question mark in front of it and then writing out your question. Um, question, but Jesus says, follow my commandments. So this is the same as the 10 commandments, question mark. Okay, um, so Toes, I hope I'm saying your, or Toes, I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Um, thank you very much for your question. No, um, Jesus said you can fulfill all of the law and the prophets by loving one another. So we fulfill all of the law and the prophets by loving one another. 
The Ten Commandments are the summary of all of the commandments, four of them to God, six of them to the to us and the way we treat people around us. One of them to God is keeping the Sabbath day. So we talked about that at the beginning of our study. And so Sabbatarians will come and say, to, they'll ask people, do you keep the Ten Commandments? When you say, well, yes, I do. They say, well, you don't keep the Sabbath day. But here's my problem with that. That they don't keep the Sabbath day either. They have changed the Sabbath day to mean going to church on Saturday when the Bible never says that. And then they are teaching the commandments, the, the doctrines or the, the commandments of men as if they are the doctrines of God. And they're telling me that I'm in sin. I am keeping the Ten Commandments because Jesus has become my Sabbath. If I love someone, I'm not going to murder them. If I love them, I'm not going to covet them. I'm going to be happy for the things that they have. If I love them, I'm not going to steal from them, right? So on and so forth. And Jesus is my rest. And so, yes, I do keep the Ten Commandments as it is fulfilled in Jesus. I'm not under the law or trying to keep the law. And I don't think that that's the commandments that Jesus was talking about when he says, keep my commandments. Um, we, we want to do the things Jesus said. If, if, if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. So we go back and we look at the things that Jesus said. Some of them are very, very difficult. Some of them are tough. Um, but I do not believe they are the same as the Ten Commandments for the various reasons that I've given here in this study. Don't let someone put you under their yoke. I, I, I refuse to let someone do that, to bring me back under the law when we have been set free from the law and we are no longer under the law, the Bible tells us. Um, and so people often use this statement by Jesus, keep my commandments, because Jesus says, when you are baptized, and so then they'll say, well, that's a, a commandment, so it means you're gotta be, in order to be saved, you gotta be baptized. That's a twisting of scripture as well. And trying to make these commandments of Jesus the same as the 10 commandments is a twisting of scripture as well. All right, thank you very much for your question. I really uh, appreciate it. It's good to have you here. I hope um, that you are blessed. We have a question here from Dan. And uh, Dan says, question, coming back to God has been wonderful. This, um, that has happened to me. However, my heart is in desire for him, but how can I keep pure in my heart for him? When I sin, I feel very guilty and not worth, uh, worthy of God. How do I stay out of the bondage from guilt and non-worthiness? I love God and I put all of my cares and worries at his feet, but sometimes feel like I am not worthy of the grace. Sometimes, do you have any suggestions that can help me with this? I do, Dan. I'm going to go ahead and remove your question here because it's so lengthy. Um, but I do. I do have some suggestions for you. Um, number one, it's fantastic that you've come back to him. And know that no one, the Bible says, if anybody says they don't have any sin, they're a liar. So everyone deals with sin. The Bible says that the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit battles against the flesh. So we don't do the things we wish. Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What you've got to make sure, Dan, is that there is genuine and real repentance taking place. So you don't want to get caught up into doing something that is harbored, unconfessed, unrepentant sin, and then saying, well, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. You genuinely repent from it. You turn from it. You 
You may find yourself weak again, falling into sin or committing sin because our, our spirit is weak. We desire, our flesh is weak. We desire to do what God wants us to do, but we just don't end up doing it. And don't, uh, the, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. When you're in Christ Jesus and you're forgiven, you are not condemned at all. And there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus for those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose, which is a very powerful passage. So I think that that can be helpful. Um, it's the enemy who wants to accuse you, wants to condemn you. Condemnation makes you think, I want to quit. I want to give up. I don't want to follow God anymore. Conviction is, this is wrong. I need to change this. And God, I need your help in changing it. We see men in the Bible that struggled and are still in the hall of faith, like Samson. Samson struggled greatly. I'm not saying that he shouldn't have been ashamed for what he did. I'm simply saying, God is more gracious than any man. And I would not, um, um, I, would, I would walk in that love that God has for you and know that none of us are worthy. There's no way you're gonna be worthy. So if you're trying to be worthy of his grace, Dan, then you gotta give that up because you're not gonna be worthy of his grace. But if we can walk in the love and the forgiveness that he gives us and in that incredible um, grace, undeserved favor, then loving God, delighting ourselves in God so we don't, so our desires change, um, abiding in Christ, having his word abide in us so our desires change, walking in the spirit so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then when you blow it, the enemy wants you to get you to stop. So you're going down the right road. It's very much like a diet. People do with diets. They're on a diet. They're doing pretty good. They're moving along well. And then all of a sudden they blow it and they quit. They're just like, I can't, I can't do this. I blew it. I, I can't do it. Really what they ought to do if they want to reach their goals is just get back into their diet. Knowing that blowing it is part of keeping a diet. Knowing that, that falling in, uh, that committing sin is part of humanity. And since Christians were still in humanity, we're still going to commit sin. But he gives us the power to be able to overcome these things. And our inner man is being renewed day by day, though our outer man is perishing. And we are being strengthened to overcome it. I've been a Christian a long time, Dan. And I know what it's like to walk with Christ and to fail and to succeed and to be able to get a handle on things that I struggle with and to struggle with things that I shouldn't still be struggling with. And all of these you have to learn to walk with Christ and in the areas um, um, and in the incredible grace that God brings into our lives. All right. So thank you very much, Dan, for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have a question here from Albert. Albert comes to us from YouTube. Albert says, in Deuteronomy, God says, a father or a child shall not be put to death for the other's sins. Yet he judged generations like um, Ahab's descendants, Deuteronomy 24, 16, um, written only for believers. Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right, Albert, thank you very much for your question. Yeah, so Deuteronomy 24, 16, and I won't pull it up because he's got a good summary of what it says there, um, that God is not gonna punish a child for the sin of their parents. However, there is another passage that God says that I will, I'm trying to think of, I wish I had it in front of me, I will pass the sin, I will visit 
the iniquity of a father to the third and fourth generation. So I'm not sure of my quote. It's close. I will visit the iniquity of the father to the third and fourth generation. And so that makes us think of this passage and your question with Ahab being judged to no longer be on the throne and his family from there on out, you know, being judged because of that, right? So here's the thing. Yes, God does not judge a father for their child's sin. A father sins and he is judged for his sin. And the son is not supposed to be judged by it. The, in the Old Testament, they had a, a saying where they would say, our fathers sinned and our teeth are set on edge. We're the ones who are suffering from our father's sin. That's because the consequences of sin are passed down. If someone, if someone does a sin and can no longer sit on the throne, then it means that their descendants won't sit on the throne either like Ahab. And so, and they will be, they will have the consequences of the sin of the father. That's the sin being visited to the third and fourth generation is the consequences of the sin. If you live a godly life and you walk godly and you pass that, that um, heritage down to your kids, then that is passed down to the third and fourth generation. But God will, does not want us to judge people for the sins of their parents. That's in the law. And then there are consequences that come from someone's actions that affected the generations that follow them. So no, um, as far as I can tell, this isn't only for believers. This is Old Testament times. But I do think that the consequences of a father's sin can be passed on from generation to generation. But there is no such thing as a generational curse. And so there are those people that will teach that there are generational curses and there's no such thing. That, you know, someone's an alcoholic and it would be passed down to their, their children. Now, there might be something genetically that makes them more disposed, but that's a different issue. That's not a curse. And God's not passing curses down from generation to generation. And so there's these deliverance movements that make a big deal out of setting people free from curses as if your problem is that you have some curse in your life. No, 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 no. Love God, obey the word of God, delight in the Lord, abide in him, walk in the spirit. You're gonna find all of those things that the Bible tells us that we are supposed to do and the way that we are supposed to live. All right, Albert, so thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. Hopefully that answers it. Feel free to ask a follow-up if I didn't answer it correctly um, or if I didn't answer it to your satisfaction. All right, thanks, Albert, appreciate it. Um, so light, um, light skin Patriot says question. Do you believe the antichrist will come out of the Roman Catholic or Islam framework? Seems like the antichrist resembles Islam Christ. So to speak. Thank you. Um, yeah, we don't know. Um, he's a political leader. The, uh, I, I do know that Joel Rosenberg and others think that the 12th Imam is going to be the Antichrist and that would be Islam and that he will bring the world together. The world would certainly look a whole lot different if it came completely under the power and the control of Islam and Islam controlled the entire world. Um, it would be a lot, a lot different looking than what we would think. Um, we do know he has some connection with Rome. 
We do know also that the, the Jews seem to receive him as the Messiah in the book of Revelation. It doesn't really outright say that, but it looks like it. So could he be Jewish? Could he be Roman? Maybe both. What's his connection? We have the reviving of the Roman Empire, the clay and the, the toes. And so we do know that the Antichrist comes out of um, some kind of a situation like that. So I, to answer your question, I think it's possible that he would come out of both. Um, but I would not lump Catholicism in with, um, with Islam. Um, Islam is a, is a false religion. Catholicism believes everything orthodox or correctly about Christianity. Now, a lot of times, um, Roman Catholics, especially other Catholics as well, will not follow what the church says. So the church will say one thing and they'll believe something else. So just because, and also there's all of this tradition that's been built up in Catholicism so people can go a different way rather than receiving Christ and being saved because they love Jesus. So uh, um, someone who's Catholic can love Jesus and, and be totally sold out to him, but they've got a lot of, a lot of stuff that's been connected to it that is wrong that's connected to Catholicism because of the way that they use tradition and because of the way that the popes are able, they say, to speak things that come from um, the Word of God. I don't believe that Catholicism is the, the harlot in the book of Revelation, as some others, even Calvary Chapel pastors, have said in the past. I don't believe that's the case. Although um, Catholicism has certain difficulties and problems because of the tradition that they um that they hang on to rather than being scripture and scripture alone. Just making sure uh, that you are, that the scripture is your authority and you're living for those things um, that the Bible tells us are scriptural and that we should um, live for those things. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate it and good to see you. Um, if you are new here, uh, then you would like to submit a question, then write the word question before it because as I'm scrolling through the comment section, I want to be able to identify it without reading every comment that's made. There are literally during, uh, this is our 45th episode, by the way. So we've had 44 Q and A's at this point now. And um, we have hundreds of comments that happen. I love the community that's here, but I can't see them if you don't write question in front of them. All right. So we have another question here. Oh, I guess we don't. Let's see. All right. Um, all right. We have a question from Matthew. Uh, Matthew comes to us from YouTube as well. Matthew says, Robert, I've done my own study in the King James Version. I've come to the conclusion that when the rapture happens, we leave this flesh behind and are put in a new glorified bodies. All right, so I guess this wasn't a question by Matthew, but just a statement. Um, I, I can't agree with that. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are gonna be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. This corrupt is gonna put on incorruptible. Um, this, um, this mortal is gonna put on immortality. Um, and then the dead in Christ rise first, and then we who are alive will meet them in the air. And um, the King James Bible, good translation, right? Comes from Texas Receptus. But, but, but I don't want to just 
there's nothing that would make us think that we have to hold ourselves only to the the the, the uh, manuscripts that the King James Bible was written from. And I realize that that's the argument with King James only, and I'm not sure you're King James only, Matthew, but I would disagree with that statement. I don't believe we are leaving the bodies behind during the rapture. I believe that our bodies are being changed. The dead in Christ rise first. He brings with them the spirits or the souls of those who have died in Christ, and then their bodies arise. The Bible talks about a resurrection where their bodies come out of the earth. And so, um, I, I don't think there's any way that any of those passages could say such a thing. Um, if you want to get more specific and look at a particular passage, um, we would be able to do that. If you want to um, give the scripture, maybe talk about what it says in the King James and how that would be different than our bodies being changed in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate um, that, Matthew. So I'm just kind of making my way through here. Um, I'm just going to go to a second prepared question that we have. If you have a question, then write the word question out. Write the question afterwards. Reread it a couple of times. Make sure uh, that it makes sense. And then we will um, go ahead and take a look at it. We'll look at a couple of more and then we'll wrap it up. Um, is uh, the true temple mount in the city of David? Um, so this is a question that we got a while back in one of our Q&As. Um, and it has to do with some videos that are on YouTube that claim that the Temple Mount is not where the Temple Mount is today, but that I was actually in the city of David because there was water sources there, one of the reasons. Um, the Antonia Fortress is what they believe that the Temple Mount is and that the Temple Mount was down in the city of David. And there are a lot of videos and it can sound uh, pretty impressive when you watch the videos until you watch the videos against it and then you realize the temple mount is not in the city of david so no the temple mount is not in the city of david and there are these um there are these groups that that say that it is uh the temple mount is where the temple mount is and um and we know that the, the top of mount moriah and um you can go up there today to the dome of the spirit and you can look at bedrock that is on Mount Moriah. Um, there are arguments about water. There's plenty of water on the Temple Mount to fill the cisterns. Um, there, there was plenty of room for the Antonia Fortress and the people who were there. So all of their arguments are spurious for it. And you got to be careful. And this tells us, I mean, we live in a time when we can go onto YouTube and we can look up anything. And that's absolutely fantastic. However, we have to be careful because a lot of times we don't know who it is. In fact, I'll just give you a little bit of advice when you're looking up videos on YouTube. Um, number one, look for who it is that is doing the video. For example, if you go to our webpage, you look at our videos, it's gonna say Calvary Tucson um, with Robert Furrow. I think is, is our Calvary Church or Calvary Tucson with Robert Furrow. Um, it's gonna tell you who we are. When you get something that just is, is very generic, like um, waters from God, and you don't know who it is, that's where you got to be careful, because you don't know is this is this a cult? Is this a Christian group that's teaching things that are are not right? 
I can't look them up. I can't look and see whether it's, if it if it's something from the Seventh-day Adventist church, if it's something from the Mormon church, if it's something from um, the Jehovah Witnesses, then you can look it up and you can see, you can use the, you know, the web to be able to, to see and to test whether or not those things are, are genuine. But if they don't tell you who they are, then you got to be really, really careful. And the same thing with these kind of statements, these kind of videos that are out there, uh, they get a lot of attention. And I know, uh, I know several people who were duped by these videos and had to come back and go, oh, that's not true. The Temple Mount is the Temple Mount and we know that. And uh, these people that put this together are not, um, are not putting it together anymore. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we have a Light Screen Patriots asking about putting in old time hymns. Yeah, sure. And um, we're, we're looking to do that even more. All right, so we go ahead and go to another um, prepared question here. If you have a question, then write the word question or put a question mark in front of it and then write your question out, then rewrite it, reread it a couple of times. I'll uh, take a couple questions here that I have prepared from previous Q and A's. And if uh, we don't get any more questions, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. All right, so um, we have our third question here, um, which is, pre is prepared, who will occupy the Millennium Kingdom? This was asked a while back and then it was asked also last week and so we answered this last week so I'll um, do this kind of quickly. The millennial, this is for those who believe in a literal thousand year millennial kingdom. Um, Israel is going to occupy it. Israel is going to go into the tribulation period at not believing in the Messiah and then during the middle of the tribulation period they're going to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. He's going to protect them and God is going to regather them together at the end of the tribulation period, that's Matthew um, 24, 29 through 31, uh, he, with a trumpet, it'll be like, it'll be another rapture. You'll have a rapture at the at before the tribulation period, then you have a rapture at the end of the tribulation period when the Jews are regathered together, and then they will populate the Millennium Kingdom. And if there are any Gentiles, and I assume there will be, who survive the tribulation period, although flesh will become a rare thing, then they will populate it as well. All right, so that's who's going to occupy the Millennium Kingdom. All right, we have another question here from Matthew. Matthew, good to see you again. Um, if you are new here, if you're joining us for the very first time, we do this every Saturday and Wednesday. We do it for an hour. We take your questions and look at them through the lens of Scripture. If you have a question, um, then you can feel free to ask it. Or if you can think, if you think of something, something hits you and comes to mind at a certain point, and then go ahead and submit that question. So we have a question from Matthew, and Matthew says, a question, 2 Corinthians 5.1, King James Version, the earthly house is our body, same as tabernacle. It, if it were dissolved, being the body as it's earthly, we have one in the heavenly. That's why we're already seated in the heavenlies. All right, so um, thanks you, Matthew. Um, let's just go ahead and go to uh, 2 Corinthians. Let me see if I can see what question you're asking here. I'm trying to kind of get your question from here. Um, so 2 Corinthians 5, 1, which says, 
Uh, where did I go? 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. All right. So let me go ahead and bring that up on the screen here, and I'll see if I can come to a conclusion here um, or, or help out with what you're asking. For we know that our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, um, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So, yeah, I think, I, I think what you're asking here, um, Matthew, is... Um, I don't, I don't know how we could already be seated in the, in the heavenlies. I think it's a position. I think that when the Bible says that we are seated in the heaven with Christ, that that is a position. Robert Furrow is saved and born again, and I am seated in the heavenlies, in the, in heaven with God. And I think, um, that's how it's saying that. I don't think there's a body of me that's pre-made that's sitting there. All right. And, and sorry if I'm misconstruing your, your question here. I just can't figure out if it could mean anything else at all um but it looks to me like um like that is that is what you're asking we have a question from daniel daniel good to see you daniel is our moderator here good to have you here daniel as always um on on our q a's um daniel says how should we evaluate the scripture when bible translations have different uh, phrases and potential differences in meaning with a concordance or something else. Um, yeah, so you have the NIV and you have the New King James, you have the King James, you have the NASB. They come to a certain passage and they all say something that is slightly different. This will tell you that there's not a really good English word for the translation in for the translation today. And that trans, translating from Greek into English or from Hebrew into English is a hard thing to do and that people can have different opinions as to exactly what it means. We believe supernaturally that God has preserved his word from generation to generation. The Bible tells us this, I think it's Psalms 12, 6 and 7. But we do know that there can be differences of opinion and differences in manuscripts. And we trust that God has preserved his word but sometimes we go, this manuscript says this and this manuscript says that, and I'm not sure which one it says. Um, I do think that a, a concordance can be good. I, I think using Blue Letter Bible, Daniel, to read the different, um, the different versions can be one of the best ways. So you just bring up the passage on Blue Letter Bible, you go to the versions of it and you just kind of read down through there and you kind of see the different ideas that people have. If you want to get more scholarly, there are Greek word studies. Uh, you have the Strong's Concordance, which is kind of basic. You've got um, um, Briggs and is it Briggs and Dags, um, which is a better concordance to be able to, to look at these things. You've got A.T. Robertson's word studies. So there's some other things that can really help you to be able uh, to, to dive in and see why one one translation says one thing and why another translation ends up saying something else all right so hopefully that helps um that helps daniel i appreciate that appreciate you um being here and working with us so uh, we've come to the end of our question so that is the end of our q a for today it's really good to see you guys i hope that you guys have a blessed day we have a service in two hours 
It is um, our Saturday night service. It's the same as our Sunday morning services. We're going to be talking about the prodigal son. The title is The Prodigal Son Explained. Um, I, you, you might think that you know the application of the prodigal son, but one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is how a lot of different people have applications that really aren't biblical, that really aren't right. And we want to take a look at what each of these things mean in, in this very familiar parable. And we're going to talk about the love of God as well. So um, come out and join us. This is TruthQuest Podcast. Uh, you can subscribe anywhere that you get podcasts. When you do subscribe, you get our full-length teachings. You get our hot topics, which we put out every Monday night at 6 p.m. There are shorter teaching clips on, on topics that are controversial or that need answering. And then we have our Q&A. Uh, this will go on the podcast as well. So just look for Robert Furrow, wherever you search for podcasts. Um, this um, this will come up, our radio podcast, our television podcast as well um, will also come up. But it's really good to see you guys. Um, if you are, um, uh, if you, uh, let's see. All right, I just got a question here. I might take, since we have time, um, if you're new here, consider liking, subscribing, and sharing, whether you're on Facebook or YouTube. Um, we want to reach as many people with the truth of the Word of God as we possibly can do. Um, and so I'm just going to go ahead and look at this question here from Wayne Rockin' Red Dillinger. It just came in. Um, and so um, Wayne says, um, if my prayer life stinks and my devotional time is hit, um, hit and miss, does that mean I am really I'm not really saved. I do believe wholeheartedly that Jesus is my savior. However, I don't have strong desires to read the Bible, but I do listen to your program and others preach often. Thank you, um, Wayne. No, this would be works. It would be a works-based religion. Uh, what you're missing out on is a few things. So if your prayer life stinks, as you say, then you're not gonna be receiving from God. There are things God wants to give you that because you don't ask him, then you're not receiving. And so you're missing out by not praying. I would talk, I would talk, I would think about doing something very basic. I would um, get, use notes on your phone, write out some prayer requests, begin asking God for certain things. You could do this when you're standing in line places, you could redeem the time. Um, when you open up your, your phone, instead of going to Facebook or YouTube, you could go to your notes and you could begin to pray. There are some good prayer apps that are out there. We're going to be working on a prayer app um, here at some point um, that you can just open up and see other things that other people want to pray about and be able to pray for them. So you're the one who's missing out. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means you're missing out. You, you, have because, you don't have because you don't ask. And the same thing is true with your devotional life, sitting down and, and, and reading the Bible. I'm not going to say that watching a program or listening to something like this, you're getting the Word of God here. You're getting the Word of God in a teaching. I'm not going to say you're not getting the Word of God. I just believe there's a real strength in sitting down between you and God, reading your Bible, and letting God speak to you. All right? So, um, no, I think that you can listen to to watch different things um there's so much content that's out there that's good that you could be good strong and mature um but you're going to be doing more things like reading your bible 
and really finding ways to make sure that you're you're praying effectively. All right. I know I already said I uh, wrapped up my um, ready to sign off here, uh, but we have a couple more questions that have come in, so I'm going to go ahead and take those questions, um, or at least one more that has come in here. Um, so we have a question from Math Boy. Math Boy, I would like your help when I have to do math. By the way. Um, did Jesus know he was only going to live to be 33 years old? Shocking. Math Boy asked a question about a number. Um, I, I assume yes. Yeah, I assume he did. I don't know when, right? Jesus, when he was a baby, he had to learn and grow. Luke tells us he grew in wisdom and understanding. So he is God. He did know more information. There were things he didn't know in the, as an earthly, as a man, but there were things that he knew as God. So he's kind of in this in-between two world state where he is God and he is man, uh, fully God, fully man, but he knew he was going to die. He talked about it. He foretold his death in going to Jerusalem. So he did know uh, that he was going to die. He knew it was going on inside of people's hearts without people asking him any questions. So yeah, he did know that. All right. So thank you very much, Math Boy, and good to have you here, uh, by the way. Um, it's your first time here, I think. Uh, giving us a question. This is the end of episode uh, 45. Really good to have you guys here. I hope you guys have a blessed day. Stay close to Jesus. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We will have no Q&A this Wednesday night, but we will be back again with another Q&A next Saturday. All right. God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus. I am signing off. We will see you guys later on.